Dries with you. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of City Breaks St Petersburg, an episode I'm going to call Pushkin. Of all the famous authors who lived and worked in the city, perhaps the two most famous are Pushkin and Dostoevsky. And of the two, it's Pushkin, I think, that you'll be most aware of, because he really does seem to be everywhere in the city. There's a museum about him. There's a cafe with a waxwork model of him sitting in the window. More about that later. There's even a whole village named after him. Again, more about that later. And he's the author that the Russians themselves seem to think of as their greatest representative. For one 19th century critic, for example, he was, quote, an encyclopedia of Russian life. And in his book, A Short Life of Pushkin, Robert Chandler explains his very great importance in the 20th century too, as follows. The five greatest Russian poets of the first half of the 20th century were all subjected to terrible political pressures. All turned to Pushkin for support. So in this episode then, a little bit about the man himself, a little bit about some of what he wrote, and a little bit about places in the city that you can visit today if you want to know more about him. He wasn't actually born in St. Petersburg, he was born in Moscow, but he grew up in St. Petersburg and lived there for most of his adult life. He had a slightly more exotic background than most of his contemporaries. His father was a descendant of Moscow gentry, but his mother was the granddaughter of a man called Abraham Hannibal, who had been a black African, bought as a slave by a Russian ambassador in Constantinople, and brought back to Russia. Pushkin was aware all through his life that he was slightly different from everybody else. He had a very middle-class upbringing, though, in fact more than that, really. He became one of the first 30 boys to be educated out at Sarskozelo at the Lycée, a school opened by Alexander I. The intention was to give some intelligent boys who perhaps couldn't, didn't come from families who could pay for their own education, to give them an all-round education and turn them into future holders of high office. So it really was quite a coup to get in. There was an entrance exam, which Pushkin passed, and he wrote fondly about the opening ceremony, at which he recalled that, quote, the emperor himself bowed graciously to every one of us. It was obviously quite a posh school. They had very formal dress uniforms, described as being a blue coat with a red collar and silver tabs, white trousers, white shirt, white cravat, jackboots and a tricorn hat. There was an opening speech at which the boys were told of their future duties as citizens and warriors. There was a six-year curriculum. Pushkin spent the entire time there, three years in the lower school, three in the upper learning history and languages, Russian, French and German, geography, arithmetic, and also, in his spare time, beginning to write. His biographer, Robert Chandler, describes the great variety of things that he produced while he was there as being including, quote, bawdy epigrams, conventional love poems, patriotic reflections and light verse. Pushkin himself had very fond memory of the school, particularly of one teacher, a Mr Kunitsin, who apparently taught moral sciences, law and logic. And Pushkin wrote a poem dedicated to him in 1825, which has the following lines. He created us. He nurtured our flair. He laid the foundation stone for us. He lit the pure lamp. It wasn't just Pushkin who remembered the school fondly. His class held a reunion every year on October the 19th, which was the anniversary of the school's opening, for the rest of their lives. We know that Pushkin often attended and that sometimes he wrote a poem especially for the occasion. So, quite a gilded youth then. What about his adult life? Well, that was spent mainly in St Petersburg. He got off to quite a quiet and 
expected start when he accepted a government post, but it wasn't long before he was also spending a lot of his time enjoying the very rich social life in St. Petersburg, going to balls, engaging in gossip, card games, often with lots of money at stake, and a lot of drunkenness. Alongside this, he had literary interests. It's known that he went to the literary salons, joined some societies, one, for example, called The Green Lamp, and that he was a frequent visitor at the theatres, known, in fact, not just for his enthusiasm for the show, but also for his enthusiasm for pursuing the leading ballerinas and actresses afterwards. Here's an extract from Robert Chandler's book, The Short Life of Pushkin, which gives you a flavour of the sort of thing he was up to. Quote, In March 1819, Nikita Veslovsky, a wealthy young man, set up a small private society known as the Green Lamp. Pushkin and his friend Delvich were both members. Meetings were fortnightly. The young men gambled, drank champagne, talked radical politics and read aloud poems and theatre reviews that they'd written. The atmosphere was of frivolity and generous high spirits. In 1820, playing against Veslovsky, Pushkin staked and lost a collection of manuscripts of his early poems that the two of them had valued at a thousand roubles. His government salary, his only regular income at the time, was 700 roubles a year. There's another story given in the book which also gives you quite a flavour of what Pushkin was like as a young man, where his friend, Veslovsky, had paid him some money to write something for the magazine and the work was not forthcoming. And on one occasion, Pushkin called round to see him. He was out, but his valet decided, having heard all this about how long they were waiting for the work, that he would do something about it. And this is how Robert Chandler describes it. Pushkin got angry and told him he was never going to finish the work. The obstinate old man locked Pushkin into Nikita's study. Whatever Pushkin said or did, the old valet just went on repeating, Write your verses, Alexander Sergeyevich. I'm not going to let you out as you wish. You have to write, so write. Realising that the valet was not going to let him out until Nikita returned in the evening, Pushkin sat down at the desk and got so carried away that he went on writing until the next day telling both the valet and Nikita himself to leave him in peace. And so Pushkin finished one of his long poems. We know that there was a seamy side to all of this. He suffered, for example, from frequent bouts of venereal disease. And in fact, it's known that it was only really when he was bedridden that he got on with the writing that he always claimed he wanted to do. A friend of his wrote the following. Pushkin is finishing the fourth canto of his poem. If he were to have three or four more doses of clap, it would be in the bag. He got into trouble in other ways too. Both Alexander I and Nicholas I were known to have been nervous of him, had his letters intercepted and insisted on censoring some of what he wrote. And eventually he did indeed go too far. He wrote some verses criticising serfdom and that resulted in him being banished from the city. He was actually away for fully for six years until Nicholas I decided to pardon him and allow him to return. He also had a brush with the Decemberist uprising in 1825. It's known that he knew at least 10 of the uprisers personally, and they in turn said that they had been influenced by him. One of them wrote, Who among the young with any education at all has not read and been carried away by the works of Pushkin, which breathe freedom? We know that Pushkin himself said that if he had been in St. Petersburg at the time, he would probably have been in the ranks of the rebels. But on his return after exile, things did calm down a bit. He was appointed as what was known as a Kammerjunker, which was a man who moved in court circles. This gave him a bit more standing in the city, probably gave the emperor a chance to keep an eye on what he was writing, 
and led, in fact, indirectly to his death a few years later. More of that anon, but for the moment I think we can sum him up as a colourful character, someone who threw himself wholeheartedly into the social life of the city, and someone actually who wasn't universally liked. A friend of his wrote when Pushkin had set off for Moscow one time, quote, We were not sorry to see him go, since he had become unpleasantly morose in society, gambling day and night with a gloomy rage. So much then for his life. How to sum up his writing? Difficult. He's found everywhere being referred to as the father of modern Russian literature, or the most revered poet of all in Russian writing. But I've noticed that not all that much of his writing is very well known in English-speaking circles. I've seen it explained that actually that's because a lot of his work was so Russian and relied particularly on clever use of the Russian language that it doesn't translate very well. Anyway, for the purposes of this episode, I've picked just three things that I want to mention. The first two are poems, two of the best-known poems he wrote and ones which I think English readers perhaps have heard of. The first one is Eugene Onegin, published in 1831, the epic poem which he'd spent eight years writing and which has been described as, quote, a sparkling picture of the young aristocrats of St. Petersburg. It certainly takes you on a tour through the theatres and the balls and the afternoon strolls along the Nevsky Prospect. It has a narrator who's a little bit older and wiser than the people he's describing and he makes a lot of fun of the raucous romantic life of everybody. The Lonely Planet puts it quite well, actually. It described it as follows, quote, Pushkin savagely ridicules its aristocratic, foppish society, despite being a fairly consistent fixture of it himself for most of his adult life. The second poem I want to mention is one we've come across already, actually, The Bronze Horseman, perhaps his best-known poem, the title referring, of course, to the statue of Peter the Great, which is overlooking the Neva and the Gulf of Finland, just along from St Isaac's Cathedral. And it opens with a description of Peter himself doing exactly that and making the plans to build his city. So here are a few lines from that part. Thought he, the haughty Swede here will curb and hold at bay, and here, to gall him, found a city. As nature bids, so must we do. A window will we cut here through, on Europe, and a foothold gaining upon this coast, the ships will hail of every flag and freely sail these seas, no more ourselves restraining. So, big plans. There's a description a little bit later of the city which ensues, which reads like this. It also takes a moment to take a dig at Moscow and mention how much trendier and younger the new St. Petersburg is going to be. Quote, Great palaces and towers, a maze of sails and mastheads crowds the harbour. Ships of all ports moor here beside these rich and peopled shores. The wide, majestic neighbour slowly labours in granite-clad to push its way neath graceful bridges. Gardens cover the once bare isles that dot the river, its glassy surface calm and grey. Beside this youthful rival drooping, old Moscow fades and is outshone, a dowager in purple stooping for her who now ascends the throne. A bit later on, there's a little description of the excitement of the city in the winter. I love thy chaste inclement weather, with its bracing and moveless air the lusty bite and pinch of frost, the sledges racing on Neva's banks, the bloom of bright young cheeks, the ballroom's noise and glitter, and, at a bachelor's get-together, the hiss and sparkle of iced champagne, and punch bowls topped with bluish flame. 
All of that, in fact, is just from the introductory stanzas, because the poem itself details the story of one Yevgeny, an impoverished inhabitant of the city, who's dreaming of marrying his beloved Parasha. He lives on the mainland, she lives on Vasilevsky Island, and one fateful night there's a huge storm and flooding, and Parasha's house is destroyed. Yevgeny's described going to visit the statue of Peter, shouting at him for building the city so near the sea, and indirectly then causing the death of his beloved Parasha. And then the poem ends with a dreamlike horror sequence, a nightmare really, where the statue appears to chase Yevgeny through the streets of the city, until he too drowns. It's a poem that absolutely rooted in St Petersburg, couldn't possibly have been written about anywhere else. And the third extract that I wanted to talk about just briefly is a short story called The Shot. It's actually a convoluted story within a story, but the reason I've chosen it is that the story within the story retells an incident about a duel, and it makes for fascinating, rather spooky reading when you know that Pushkin himself lost his own life in a duel only a few years after writing it. In the main story, we hear about a Russian military outpost where a mysterious stranger arrives and spends his time practising his shooting and is obviously a real crack shot. And so everyone's surprised when this man is insulted by somebody else and doesn't challenge him to a duel, which would have been the expected. Then there's a story within the story explaining why this crack shot, who presumably would win any duel that he fought in, actually shies away from them. And I'm going to read a little quote from that. He's telling a story from long ago about how he had been insulted by somebody and challenged them to a duel, and this is what happened. Quote, the dawn was just breaking. I was standing at the appointed place with my three seconds. With inexplicable impatience, I awaited my opponent. The spring sun rose, and it was already growing hot. I saw him coming in the distance. He was walking on foot, accompanied by a second. We advanced to meet him. He approached, holding his cap filled with black cherries. The seconds measured twelve paces for us. I had to fire first, but my agitation was so great that I could not depend upon the steadiness of my hand, and in order to give myself time to become calm, I ceded to him the first shot. My adversary would not agree to this. It was decided that we should cast lots. The first number fell to him, the constant favourite of fortune. He took aim, and his bullet went through my cap. It was now my turn. His life at last was in my hands. I looked at him eagerly, endeavouring to detect if only the faintest shadow of uneasiness. But he stood in front of my pistol, picking out the ripest cherries from his cap and spitting out the stones, which flew almost as far as my feet. His indifference annoyed me beyond measure. What is the use, thought I, of depriving him of life when he attaches no value whatever to it? A malicious thought flashed through my mind. I lowered my pistol. We are then told how the narrator tells his foe that he doesn't think it worth shooting somebody who obviously couldn't care less, and that he's not going to shoot him. And then the narrator feels compelled to resign his commission and leave the military outpost, because this, of course, is dishonourable. And he explains how he's thought of revenge for this every day since then. And then the story goes back to the main plot, and we learn how it is that he gets a chance to take his revenge. I wouldn't dream of spoiling it for you by telling you what happens. So then, if you're interested, that's a story called The Shot, by Alexander Pushkin. As I mentioned, Pushkin himself went on to die in a duel, so I'm going to relate a little bit how that came about. So at the time he was married to Natalia, they had four children, 
and he was writing and often also appearing at court in his role as a Junker man. Natalia would go with him, and being very beautiful, she attracted a lot of attention, especially from one young Frenchman called Georges d'Arthez. Gossip ensued, of course, and this culminated in Pushkin receiving a letter which mocked him and accused him of being part of, quote, the serene order of cuckolds. This, of course, meant that he had to reply and challenge Georges Dantes, who had written the letter, to a duel, and this was duly carried out. And it's said that every child in Russia learns a story of what happened on the snow-covered field just outside St. Petersburg when Pushkin met his end. This incident is nicely described in Robert Chandler's book, so I'm going to read a little paragraph from that, which goes as follows. Around half past four, Pushkin, Dantes and their seconds met at the prearranged spot on the outskirts of St. Petersburg. Pushkin and Dantes were placed twenty yards apart and given their pistols. They began to walk towards each other. Dantes fired first. Pushkin fell to the ground, dropping his pistol. Saying he still felt strong enough to shoot, he asked for his second pistol. Dantes waited by the barrier. Raising himself up on one elbow and aiming carefully and accurately, Pushkin fired. Dantes fell. Pushkin asked where he was wounded. And Dantes replied, I think the ball is in my chest. Pushkin replied, Bravo! However, it turned out that Dantes's wound wasn't too serious, whereas Pushkin's really was. The bullet had gone right into his abdominal cavity. And so he was carried home by friends and laid on the sofa in his study. Doctors were summoned. Friends began to come and visit. Things were clearly very serious. A note from the Tsar arrived, promising to look after Natalia and the children. It was clear that he wasn't going to survive, and he began to say goodbye to his friends, have his children brought in. It's said that he asked for his favourite food, a plate of stewed cloudberries, which his wife fed him. But, sadly, shortly after he finished them, he died. His popularity amongst ordinary people was enormous. The Tsar very much admired him, but they were also wary of his popularity, I think, and they tried to play a trick at the last minute, worried that so many people would turn up to his funeral, even though his students and his professors had all been banned from attending. They decided to move it at the last minute, from the large church where it had been going to be held, to a much smaller one. In fact, the city was rife with rumours, and a lot of people found out anyway, and turned up at the smaller church, and queued up to pay their respects. The writer Turgenev left us a couple of lines explaining in what awe he was held and how people queued up and filed past the body and couldn't resist taking a little shred of his clothing or a little lock of his hair. And he explains it like this. The veneration for the memory of the poet was so great that the front of his frock coat was reduced to ribbons and he lay there almost in his jacket alone. His side whiskers and hair were carefully trimmed by his female admirers seems rather strange given his huge legacy that in fact he was still only 37. How to sum up his legacy then? Well he's very much known as the father of Russian literature. No less a person than Dostoevsky wrote that he was quote a unique and unprecedented phenomenon. For Gogol he was quote the embodiment of the Russian spirit. Even Pravda the communist newspaper had something to write about him on the centenary of his death in 1937 managing to come out with some words that stressed his literary greatness and claimed him for Russia, while also implying that he'd been done for by the emperor and the Tsarists. This is what they wrote. Quote, 
A hundred years have passed since the greatest Russian poet, Alexander Sergeyevich Pushkin, was shot by the hand of a foreign aristocratic scoundrel, a hireling of Tsarism. I'd like to finish off the episode by pointing out four places in today's St. Petersburg that you can visit in order to find little traces of Pushkin. So the first one is the school that he went to, the one set up by the emperor. It's out at what used to be called Tsarskazelo, where the Catherine Palace is, but in fact in the grand renaming that went on once the communists took hold. Eventually, in 1937, the year of the anniversary of his death, the village of Tsarskazelo was renamed Pushkin. And if you go there, you can visit the school. You can see Pushkin's actual room. You can wander around the gardens and see the huge monument put up to him, paid for by the villagers to, as the guidebook puts it, quote, immortalise their love for the genius of Russian poetry, and generally learn quite a lot about Pushkin himself as a child and also about life in imperial times. The main place to visit, I think, is probably the Pushkin Memorial Flat, which is in the city centre. It's the last apartment that he lived in, the one where he died, and it's been left, or rather refurbished, to be exactly, or more or less exactly as they can manage, how it was when he last was in there. One of his friends, the poet Vasily Sukovsky, had drawn a sketch at the time of exactly what the room looked like and what was in it, and this has been used to make sure it's as faithful to the original as possible today. So if you go there, you can see not just a 19th century flat as it was, but various memorabilia relating to Pushkin himself, his paper knife and his inkstand, for example, reproductions of the collection of over 4,000 books which he had, which were apparently in 14 different languages. There's a little figure of an Ethiopian boy, which he kept apparently throughout his life, as a reminder of his heritage and his great-grandfather. There's his death mask and a lock of his hair, and a clock set at 2.45, which is apparently the exact time when he died. This flat is obviously a lure for tourists, but it's also somewhere that the Russians remember. And every year, on January the 29th, which is the anniversary of his death, flowers are left outside by members of the public who just want to mark the day. There's a building in St. Petersburg called Pushkin House. It's in fact not the house where he lived. It's a building actually known as the Institute of Russian Literature. And if you go there, you can see original copies of some of his books and a whole lot of his manuscripts. It's got relics connected to other St. Petersburg authors, to Gogol, to Dostoevsky, to Tegenev and Tolstoy. But in that illustrious company, it's interesting to note, isn't it, that the person after whom they actually named the Institute of Russian Literature was Pushkin. Of the places to visit, I think that one is the one where you'd get most out of it if you spoke some Russian. But the last one on the list is absolutely the opposite. You can get plenty out of it. It's my top favourite, actually, of the Pushkin memorabilia, with no Russian at all. And that is the Pushkin Cafe on the Nevsky Prospect. It's about ten minutes down from the Hermitage End, on the left-hand side. And you should notice it straight away, because there, in the window, is a life-sized waxwork model of Alexander Pushkin. It's said to be the building that he was in when he left to fight his fatal duel. And it still today has a very genteel 19th century sort of atmosphere. It doesn't feel like a place to get drunk and lose a lot of money at cards. More a place to sip tea among lace tablecloths and nice wallpaper. So I enjoyed my visit there for both those reasons. A little taste of 19th century St. Petersburg, but also a link to Pushkin. 
So that's about it for today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed finding out a little bit about Pushkin and who he was and what he wrote and where you can find him in the city today. And in fact, I'm planning to stay with literature for the next two episodes, which will in fact be the final two episodes of the St. Petersburg series. Next week, we're going to stay in the 19th century and have a look at what we can learn about St. Petersburg from the works of two of its other really best-known authors, Nikolai Gogol and Fyodor Dostoevsky, both of whom knew the city really well, lived there and set their stories in it. And then the last episode, the very final one, going to look at literature in the Soviet era. So for today then, thank you very much for listening. Spasibo. And let's give the very last word to the Russian language, which you may have noticed I do not speak or indeed pronounce very well, by saying goodbye in Russian. Dosvidanya. <laughs>